The reading for today is from 1 John 2, verses 12 to 17. I write to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. I write to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, dear children, because you have known the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God lives in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes, and the boasting of what he has and does, comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away. But the man who does the will of God lives forever. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for sending your son, the Lord Jesus, that through him we might know you. Please, would you deepen that knowledge in our hearts, in our minds, in our wills, in our flesh. On this Pentecost Sunday, we thank you for pouring into our hearts the life-giving gift of yourself in your Holy Spirit. And please, would you so fill us with him that our only desire will be to know and to love you. In the name of Jesus, we pray and believe. Amen. One of the times I feel greatest sympathy for school teachers is when they must write reports. I know the format has changed uh, over the years. Uh, If you're a parent with a child in uh, school nowadays, especially primary school, uh, you'll probably know that uh, often teachers these days use pre-programmed sets of phrases, a phrase bank, and they press various buttons Uh, And then out comes the report. And you hunt in the density of this paperwork for something personal uh, within there. Uh, Also, some of the programs aren't very well written, and they generate lots of uh, grammatical errors. Uh, There was one year I sent back the report with red pen and said the teacher must try harder. But I, I try to be kinder than that, because... Actually, it's jolly hard to have a mountain uh, of reports. And, of course, every teacher wants to write uh, that which will be helpful 
uh, to the child and to his or her parents. That blend of incisive comment that is both objective and personal, honest and encouraging seems to me a daunting task. Now, I know that some people uh, won't care what was written even at the time, uh, and certainly less many years later. Um, But I always thought a good report, from a teacher's perspective, ought to seek out that which is worthy of praise, even if that takes quite a lot of searching uh, for some children, uh, and combine it with areas of growth, potential, and where necessary, warning. I happened to be browsing through some of my own old school reports a little while ago, and I couldn't resist this morning uh, showing you one of them. It should appear on the screen. Uh, there it is. Uh, and I want to draw your attention to one subject that's down there uh, that's uh, highlighted. Uh, I gained 34% in the exam. It's not very good. Uh, I came 21st out of 23 in the class. Uh, mercifully, we don't rank children uh, in their classes anymore. Uh, And my teacher's comment, well, you can judge for yourself, uh, rather poor, a more conscientious effort is required. It's not exactly full of encouragement, is it? It's rather cold and terse. Uh, Not, one would hope, a subject that would be integral to any future career. So shall I show you what subject it was in? There we go. It was in Scripture. I guess the Church of England must have been a bit desperate when I applied for training as a vicar. And maybe I was a particularly poor student, but that report does leave something to be desired, doesn't it? Uh, Surely a teacher must offer both encouragement as well as the urging and the criticism. With only the latter, not many of us will flourish And to be fair to that teacher who produced the report with some uh, grammatical errors in before, I went out of my way to thank that teacher for the encouraging comments they'd written about my child in their report that year. And it seems to me as we read John's first letter, uh, both as a whole and very specifically in the section we're looking at this morning, uh, we find a teacher's pastoral heart full of sincere encouragement for his readers' faithfulness in their grand subject, which is following Christ in the whole of their lives. And establishing from that, uh, within this whole letter, uh, the encouragement and urgency to pursue faithfulness in the three tests of the Christian life uh, that we'll uncover again and again in John's first letter. Trust in Christ, loving the sisters and brothers, pursuing faithfulness and obedience to the word of God. John will say to us over and over in a myriad of ways, these are the three authenticating hallmarks of what it means to know God and to follow Jesus Christ as Lord. And when we come to this section here, verses 12 to 14, I've put it out there in a table on the screen. I'll explain why in a moment. We're coming to really the most encouraging part of the whole letter. And for John, who writes in a very different style uh, to his brother apostles, uh, Paul and Peter, uh, this really is the bit that the others would stick at the front of the letter. This is his greeting. Uh, It's not names, and we still don't know a place of the particular church or the city in which this congregation was formed or found. But these are the people to whom John is writing. And he wants them to hear a word of encouragement to them. There's much that he wants to teach them, much in which they need to learn and change and grow. 
But he wants them to do it from the basis of solid encouragement. So though it comes here, uh, halfway through chapter 2, this really is the headline, the encouraging headline for the whole letter. Or if you like, in a school report, uh, this is the personal paragraph written at the end that begins with warm encouragement about the progress of the child. Now I should say, and this is why Mo read uh, beyond this, uh, verses 15 to 17, that I had planned we would get all the way through uh, that section. Uh, It became clear to me in preparation that that was simply not going to happen if I was going to honour the promise to keep these services short uh, while Sunday school is going on over these uh, weeks. So we're just going to consider these verses this morning. And we'll come back uh, after half term and we'll look at verses 15 to 17 then. So don't be alarmed if it seems I've been going on for a while and we haven't yet got to the even halfway point of the reading. We're cutting it off and just doing this part today. And John writes these uh, verses in a highly structured and repetitive way. He is himself a teacher uh, and teachers repeat themselves, don't they, uh, to make sure that their points are well understood I remember my father telling me uh, when I started in preaching uh, from his experience uh, in business and in pitching uh, um, projects uh, to get uh, people to sign up to them. He would say, tell them what you're going to tell them, tell them, and then tell them what you've told them. And it's a bit like that with John. It's a bit like that with every teacher. Uh, Repetition uh, is a necessary tool in the teacher's uh, arsenal. Uh, And so it is here. He identifies uh, three groups. Uh, the dear children, the fathers, and the young men. And then he repeats uh, what he says to the dear children, the fathers, and the young men. So who is he referring to uh, in these three groups, and what does it all mean, and why is it so important that he says it all twice? Well, let's work through the three groups. We'll work through the three groups in pairs Uh, So we'll look at each pair uh, at the same time. So there'll be three uh, sections we're going to look at uh, in this passage this morning. But remember the note. Uh, uh, This is a word of encouragement and strengthening uh, that John is bringing to his readers. And when John speaks to dear children, he doesn't just mean the babies or even the under-18s in the congregation. If you look back uh, to verse 1 in this chapter, you'll see the way uh, he uses this language. John's dear children are the Christians who belong to the church that he's writing to. His children are the members of this little congregation somewhere probably in Asia Minor or modern-day Turkey. That's probably one of the churches uh, that Jesus speaks to in the beginning of the book of Revelation, whether it's Ephesus or Laodicea or Thyatira or one of those. But they're real people in a real congregation in a real town. And John says, you're my children, my dear children, he writes to you. It's very revealing that he uses that tender language. And it is tender and not patronizing. It's common to the other apostles as well. The apostles relate to those who believe in Christ through their words as fathers to children. Paul extends the metaphor even further by likening himself to both a mother and a father. This is metaphor here. He says this, uh, Paul says this to the Thessalonian Christians, as apostles of Christ, we could have been a burden to you, but we were gentle among you, like a mother caring for her little children. We loved you so much 
For you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children, encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live lives worthy of God, who calls you into his kingdom and glory. 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 6 and following. And the lesson for us is this. We should receive the apostles' words as children are bidden to receive their parents' love and wisdom. These are not the heartless and cruel school teachers that some of us remember from our childhood in a different age. The apostles write as they do from love. Yes, they write with authority. They are the spokesmen of God, but it is a parental authority. It's saturated with love. And so we honor them, these who were the, from the first eyewitnesses and servants of the Lord Jesus and who were commissioned by him to bring his word through the generations right down to our day. We honor them just as we're called to honor our own human parents. And I wonder if you read the Bible like that, trusting that its message is both perfectly loving and absolutely authoritative. For it is God's word, but it's not his word merely dictated, uh, as it were, through these machines. This is the word of our Father in heaven, mediated through these fathers of our faith. That's why we attend to their words, why we honor them, because we honor the Heavenly Father in whose name they write. So often I find, even in the church, that people commonly neglect or even worse, are afraid of or uh, suspicious of the word of God or of parts of it. When we see or hear these words as children of a loving parent to their child, and not their own words, but the words of the loving Heavenly Father that he has given to them for us, then I think we must receive them in a different way, in the way then in which they were intended We know that a child only harms him or herself when he neglects or resists the loving word of his parent. And what parent would put a bowl of food laced with poison in front of their infant? So why is it that so many seem to think that in the Bible we may find the word of God, but we must separate out those other things which are harmful to us or which we can no longer accept in these modern and enlightened days? It's not our attitude at all. Our attitude when we come to the scriptures, when we sit down as I hope you do and read them every day or when it comes to this part of the service when we've had the scriptures read and we're digging into them, the attitude of our hearts should be that of those of children who are sitting before a loving parent and who are longing to receive the good that they have for them. Of course, even that metaphor points, doesn't it, uh, to the trouble because we are not perfect children to our own parents and we who are parents are not perfect parents to our own children. Sin has come in and disrupted uh, that family relationship. It's true in all our families. And of course, it's true here as well. We need the Lord's forgiveness and help. We need the Holy Spirit to come and enlighten our minds that we might receive the word of God as it actually is the word of our loving heavenly father who has come to bring us to his son and then to to grow us in his son, to teach us what it means to follow him and to grow in that faith until our lives end. But this is good food. 
This is words for our strengthening and encouragement. And when John says, my dear children, he's alluding to that loving bond that unites us to God via the medium of the word brought to us by the apostles' testimony to Christ. And what does John want his spiritual children to know? What does he want us to know? Well, two things. I write to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. That's verse 12. And then verse 14, I write to you, dear children, because you have known the Father. And what's really important for us here is that we grasp that John is, as we say, speaking truth that is two sides of the same coin. Although he uses very different language, the forgiveness of sins, knowing the Father, what he's saying is that these two experiences are one and the same. And if we try and detach the one from the other, then we will in fact lose both. And when we realize that and receive it, then it is enormously strengthening for us who believe in Jesus Christ. Your sins have been forgiven on account of Jesus' name. You have known the Father And each one of those can be used uh, to strengthen and sharpen and test the other. Do you believe that Jesus died for your sins? Do you believe that the blood of Jesus, as John was teaching us a couple of weeks ago, has purified you from all sin? Do you trust him? Well, if so, then it is true of you that you now know God. You now know the Father. He is your Father. And you are his daughter or son. Indeed, the tense that is used means this. uh, You have known the father. You know him now and you will continue to know him. This is not just true once that it can then be forgotten or changed. Once you're in the family, you're in the family. Do you trust Jesus for your forgiveness? Well, then God is your heavenly father and will always be so. And the trouble is when humble Christians are battered both by the hostile world and by those. Remember we were looking at these last week, the false teachers who've come into this congregation uh, who claimed a more enlightened approach. And they began to doubt whether they really knew God at all. They were just clinging to what C.S. Lewis famously called mere Christianity. They just trusted Jesus, the Jesus the Bible taught And now these sophisticated teachers had come in and were uh, saying to them, well, it's not really enough, and actually it's a bit too simplistic. You need this new doctrine over here. And they were confused. I remember as a very uh, newborn Christian in my first year uh, at university, I became a a Christian in a a strongly um, charismatic or Pentecostal environment, and I was told that unless I spoke in tongues, I had not yet been properly converted. And night after night, for weeks on end, I would cry to God to give me this gift of being able to speak in tongues, just like they did on the day of Pentecost. And I was told that until that happened, I wasn't yet properly a child of God. And then I discovered in the New Testament uh, that Paul says... Uh, That not everybody has every gift of the Holy Spirit. Do all speak in tongues, he says. Do all prophesy. Do all interpret. And the answer clearly he expects is no. 
God distributes gifts uh, in a myriad of ways. And no Christian has them all. It's one of the ways he reminds us that we need each other. Uh, We'll come back to that emphasis another day. And and don't mishear me. I rejoice that the Lord gives as one of his gifts to some of his children the gift of praising him in ecstatic tongues. What a wonderful gift it would be. But it's not every child of God who has every gift of God. And it wasn't until I read what the New Testament really taught that I realized, no, if I've trusted in Jesus for the forgiveness of my sins, that's enough. I've come to know God as my heavenly father, and I don't need any second experience or subsequent uh, uh, enlightening uh, in order uh, to become a, a different kind or a proper kind of child of God. Do you believe in Jesus? then you know the Father. That's it. There are no two stages, two classes in Christianity. Now we can reverse uh, this as well. Uh, There are some, like the corrupt teachers uh, who have unsettled the church that John is writing to, uh, there are some claiming you can know God without coming to him through Christ and his cross. Oh, it's just a matter of inner enlightenment, or perhaps there are other pathways up the mountain. We can use this language of knowing God without coming through the messy and humbling business of Christ and his cross. And John says, no, it really is a two-sided coin. There's no knowledge of God without forgiveness of sins. There's no forgiveness of sins without the death of Jesus that turns aside the wrath of God. Do you trust that Jesus forgave you? Then you are God's child. Let no one cause you to doubt that. Whether they be a sophisticated teacher uh, or the uh, doubts that come from within. If you cry out to Jesus, Father, forgive me. Uh, Cry out to Jesus to forgive me. Then the Father hears that prayer and you are his child. You know God. Well, then let's gather together at the foot of the cross of Christ in worship And wonder, nothing can drag us away or separate these two from each other. And having spoken to the whole church, uh, therefore, as his dear children, wanting them to know these things, and we never move on from them either. Never move on from the cross of Christ where our sins are forgiven. Never move on from the simple acceptance of the Father taking us into his family. We need to hear that when we've been believers for 60 years, just as much as when we've been believers for six hours. It never changes. It never gets less important. There's never any other deeper encouragement than this that John wants us to know. And having spoken to the whole church as his dear children, John now divides these believers along age lines, uh, addressing fathers and young men Uh, The dividing line uh, in Greek society was around the age of 40. Um, If you were above 40, then you're one of the fathers. If you're below 40, then you're one of the young men. Uh, I arrived in this parish on one side of the line. Uh, The line now looks increasingly distant. I had another birthday this week, and uh, it seems a long time ago since I crossed it. Uh, But really, it doesn't matter about a particular age. Uh, The point is that uh, the whole church is here understood Uh, Men and women, uh, children, uh, boys and girls. Uh, Just remember, John uses this language because he wrote before the 1970s. Uh, That's not his fault. Uh, Gender 
gender-neutral language hadn't been invented uh, when the New Testament was written. So when John says fathers, he means older people in the congregation, uh, and not just literal fathers or literal mothers. He just means the older ones in the church. Uh, And when he says young men, he means young women as well, and even those who some of the uh, teenagers might think aren't quite so young anymore, but actually we might still be relatively young perhaps uh, in the faith. So uh, his language, although it comes across to us as exclusive uh, um, fathers and young men, actually isn't at all. It's, it's inclusive language, uh, but he just, uh, as I say, had the failure to write before the 1970s. So um, here is uh, all of us. What do we learn from the fact that he addresses us according to age? Uh, Well, the first thing we need to note from that is that the congregation includes all ages. It's a natural fracturing point uh, in so many churches. Older members want to do something more encouraging and perhaps quieter. Uh, The younger want something more exciting and perhaps louder. Now, of course, it's absolutely right, uh, for many reasons, to gather with those in a similar situation to us. Uh, when we unlock, uh, and God willing, it's only a few weeks now and uh, before we can begin to uh, uh, restart all sorts of activities, uh, we're not planning to merge ladies' fellowship with crossover uh, or the Thursday cafe with the TOTS group. Uh, that would probably not be helpful for anybody uh, if we were to do that. But the church itself, the church in its essence, is a family. And one of the great blessings of church is each other, and each other specifically here in John's writing across the generations. So we will never do at St. John's youth church and therefore, I guess, old church. I've seen it deepen divisions in another parish Uh, where the agitation to have a family service from one end and the agitation to have a traditional service from the other led to a dividing of the main service. And yes, both groups in a sense were happier, but they also grew increasingly distant from each other and indeed at that worst antagonistic towards each other. We've never done that here at St. John's and by God's grace we never will We will stay together as one in Christ because we're a family. And that's why, uh, once COVID is passed, we will be bringing our children back into this morning service at the beginning and the end of it. Uh, Will it be louder and more chaotic? Yes. And that's wonderful. And you just need to get over it. So if you've enjoyed this moment of quiet with the children not interrupting us uh, during the morning service, do enjoy it because it will come to an end. And we will, God willing, never go back to it, uh, barring another pandemic disrupting our family life here in church. You see, we're a family. And John writes, all of the congregation are his children, as it were, in the faith. But the fathers and the young men, the older and the younger, we belong together. And we mutually enrich one another in our faith and our love as we do so. So what distinct blessings belong to the older ones? Uh, assuming uh, that spiritual maturity matches their gray hairs. It's so profoundly simple that John repeats it without amendment. I take it he doesn't repeat it because he thinks they will have forgotten it by the second time he says it. Uh, Verses 13 and 14, it's identical. I write to you fathers 
because you have known him who is from the beginning. And then he says exactly the same thing again. Now he's not saying that the younger believers don't know the Lord Jesus, he who is from the beginning. It is rather that those who have known Christ for decades should have a spiritual maturity that is there to act as a ballast within congregational life, as a strengthening for the younger ones when they're thrown off beam. The sort of stability that's been through a few crises and discovered that the Lord can be trusted in the midst of them. It's been through a few apparently irreconcilable problems or unbreachable divides and seen that actually the Lord hears prayer and answers in extraordinary ways and has taken us through many a crisis in the past and will do so again. It's that kind of deep knowledge of the Father that acts as a steadying, encouraging ballast to the whole congregation. And as fatherhood becomes grandfatherhood and mortal life begins to weaken, uh, there's a real tangible sense in the believer uh, that though everything else is gradually being stripped away, this is the one thing that matters. This is the one thing that abides, the knowledge of Christ. And even I've seen it as sometimes people in their old age, their physical faculties, their mental faculties uh, begin to slip away And something of the inner essence of a Christ-one life shines through as the only thing that will endure into eternity. Sometimes an older church member thinks their time has passed in useful Christian service because of the weakening of the body or the mind. And John says, not at all. And he almost certainly writes uh, as a very elderly man at this point, quite possibly in his 90s himself. And he says to you fellow old people like me, uh, because you know the Father, you've come to the heart of your faith and you've got that which is the only thing necessary to pass on to these young ones who are flitting this way and that and whose lives are so full of every latest thing. Just make sure that it is the knowledge of God that is central to your church and your life and model that and pass it on that the younger ones may know that in the end this is all that matters. What about the young then? I write to you young men because you've overcome the evil one, verse 13 again, and uh, the other side I write to you young men because you're strong and the word of God lives in you and you have overcome the evil one. How does a young person overcome Satan? It does sometimes feel, doesn't it, in youth, uh, that the temptations of the world, the flesh of the devil, are at their most intense. And they come to those who are the weakest in human terms or in faith terms. How is it that the young believer overcomes Satan? If you read through the whole of John's letter, uh, then you'll discover the answer, as we're going to be doing with his help, uh, the Lord's help over these coming months. Uh, Just keep on trusting Jesus. Keep on loving the sisters and brothers. Keep on being determined to obey the word of God. And Satan will flee from you because he has no hold on you. Never mind the Hollywood Satan of the horror movies. You overcome the evil one by not believing his lies. You're ruining your life by following Christ. Uh, But frankly, it's not worth the effort. No one else is doing it among your friends. And anyway, he's probably not even there and doesn't want you if he was. Isn't that what Satan whispers? 
and whispers intensely into the lives of those who are young in the flesh and young in faith. Now, young people overcome Satan through the strength that God gives. And John says that strength comes to us through the word of God. The psalmist puts it like this. How can a young man keep his way pure? By living according to your word. I've hidden your word in my heart, he says, that I might not sin against you. To put it the other way around, negatively, neglect the word of God. And there is the way to open the path for the devil into your life. There is the way to weakness and vulnerability. The young are normally, and perhaps understandably, the ones who are under the intense pressure. There's a reason that most people come to Christ, if they're going to do so, relatively young in life. But also that's when many fall away from faith. It's the period in life. Of course, there can happen at any point of our lives. But it does seem to be a particularly intense spiritual battle that goes on in the lives of the young. Add to that the busyness, the pressure of the world and its culture that our elders don't seem to understand uh, and can help us with. And all the other things going on in our lives. And we know why the young need that particular encouragement that John gives. Let the word of God live in you. And there is the power to overcome the evil one. There is the strength that God will give you to keep on trusting Jesus, to keep on loving others, to keep on obeying that word that he commands. As Isaiah says in that great prophecy in chapter 40, even youths grow tired and weary, young men stumble and fall, but those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. And so, dear children, keep on trusting Jesus because that's what brings you to know God. You want to come to know God? Then trust in Jesus to forgive your sins. And as we are brought by the Holy Spirit into being as a local church family from the very youngest to the very oldest, then the longer you've been a Christian, the more will you help us to show us that knowing God is all that matters, it's all that endures. Be that ballast for us that we may truly be the family of God. And for the younger, don't give up on faith or Christ whether it's temptation within or pressure without, dwell here in the word of God and you will overcome even Satan himself and find the strength that God gives you to enable you to run a race that will take you to be among the old believers and eventually into glory itself. We need each other. God has given us each other because he is our father and we are his children. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, thank you for this word of encouragement. In some ways it's hard for us to grasp the repetition, the fathers and the young men. Lord, please help us just to come to your Son and his cross, to trust that our sins are forgiven, and so to know you, our Heavenly Father. And Father, please would you take and use us, whatever stage we're at in life, whether at the very beginning of faith or with the end in view. 
Please keep us walking in truth and living in love. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.